Suppose you're having a conversation with a friend, uh, a coworker, family member, and suppose they said something like, you know, you can't believe what the Bible has to say about Jesus because those books were all written by his followers. I mean, they were believers, and that makes them biased. What would you say to something like that? Well, try this. Suppose you witnessed a murder happened right in front of you. You saw every gory detail. So when they catch the perpetrator and it comes time for the trial, you would be the prosecution's star witness. So there you are on the witness stand. Prosecuting attorney leads off, asks you to describe everything you saw, right? And then you are so convincing that the prosecuting attorney turns to the judge and says, Your Honor, the prosecution rests. His final question to you is, Do you see the perpetrator anywhere in the courtroom? And you point to the defendant. That's the man. Prosecution's done. Now, it's the defense attorney's time for cross-examination. So he steps up to you, points to his client, the defendant, and says, Sir, do you believe my client is guilty? And you say, You're doggone right I do. So the defense attorney turns to the judge and says, Your Honor, the entire point of this trial is to determine the guilt or innocence of my client, and this man is convinced he's guilty before the trial has even begun. He is biased, and I demand that his testimony be thrown out of court. Would that work? Why not? Because he's not in the jury, right? He's on the witness stand. And there's a difference between a juror and a witness. See, when you have a belief before or in spite of any evidence, that's what you call a bias. But when you have a belief because of something that you've seen, that's called a conviction. And the writers of the New Testament made it very clear that the things they wrote about Jesus, they wrote because of what they saw, what they heard, what they touched, tasted, and felt they made it very clear that they were eyewitnesses of all these things, and it was because of their convictions that they wrote them down. That's what made them believe what they witnessed. They wrote them down because they wanted us to believe as well. In fact, in a court of law, if you lack conviction as a witness, that ruins you as a witness. Do you believe my client is guilty? I prefer to keep an open mind about things like that. No, if you saw it happen right in front of you, you would have a conviction just like the writers of the New Testament did. Or suppose that you're having a conversation with a friend, co-worker, family member, and suppose somebody says to you something like, isn't the Bible really open to interpretation? I mean, seriously, can't you just make it say anything you want it to say? What would you say to something like that? Well, try this. Suppose you said to me, run to the store and get some bread. So an hour later, I come back empty-handed, and you say, where's the bread? Oh, oh. So I reach in my pocket, and I pull out and hand you $200 in cash. Here you go. I didn't want money. I wanted a loaf of bread. Oh, well, you said bread. Now, you might think I'm a little thick, but come on, let's be fair. Bread is a slang term for money, so it's possible to interpret your words in that way, right? Or when you said, run to the store and get some bread, suppose an hour late I come back drenched in sweat and panting. What happened to you? Are you kidding? It must be three miles to the store. That's a long run. And you might say, I didn't mean physically run. I meant just 
go, hurry things along. And again, you might think I'm kind of thick, but that's a fair interpretation of your words, isn't it? Run to the store could mean physically run. But suppose when you say run to the store and get some bread, I disappear for two weeks. And when you finally track me down, you find me in the Bahamas. And you ask me, what are you doing in the Bahamas? And I say, you know, when you said run to the store and get some bread, I took that to mean go to the Bahamas, take a two-week vacation, and use your credit card. I think you'd complain about that. Even if I argued that language is flexible and open to interpretation, I think what you would say is there is no way that you could interpret my words to get that meaning from my words. You know, the Bible is written in ordinary human language, and to even talk to each other, we have to interpret those words all the time. All language is subject to interpretation. We all use cliches and figures of speech, metaphors and analogies just to have a conversation with someone. To understand them, you have to do some interpretation, but there's a limit to how far words are open to interpretation. Isn't that true? In the same way, to read and understand the Bible, yeah, you have to do some interpretation. And there are places where it can be hard to understand. But for most of it, just read it. Is the Bible open to interpretation? No. You can only stretch the language so far. It's just subject to interpretation like all human language is. Right? But to be fair, the Bible can be made to say anything you want. You know how? If you never read it, because if you never read it, I can tell you it says anything I want, and you won't know any better. How do you defend yourself from something like that? Read it. You read it for yourself, and then you'll know what it can and can't say, right? Or suppose you're having a conversation with a friend, coworker, family member. Suppose they see something like, you know that old illustration about the three blind men and the elephants? Uh-oh, did you ever hear that illustration? It goes something like this. Three blind men have a hold of an elephant. Somebody asks them, what is the elephant like? So the first blind man, he has a hold of the elephant's trunk. And he says, well, elephants are kind of long and round like a fire hose. That's what they're like. The second blind man says, no, you're nuts. Because, you see, he has a hold of the elephant's ear. He says elephants are kind of big and flat, like a rug or a canvas sail. The third blind man has a hold of the elephant's tail. He says, you're both out of your minds. An elephant is thin and long like a snake. Now, they seem to contradict each other, but is any of them really wrong? Aren't they really just experiencing different parts of the elephant? Right? And in all the talk that you hear today about God, God is like this and God is like that, all these things that seem to contradict, is anybody really wrong? Because aren't we all just experiencing different parts of God? You ever hear this illustration? Pretty good, huh? What would you say to something like that? Well, try this. That's a great illustration, but let's adjust the illustration a little bit. Three blind men meet together in a room, and they say to each other, I'm bored. Let's go out and find an elephant and see what an elephant is like. So they all grab their canes, and they head out. 
First blind man heads out the door, turns to his right, wanders off into the woods and says, you know what? Elephants have leaves. Second blind man heads off straight ahead. He wanders into the men's room. He says, son of a gun. Elephants are smooth and cool like porcelain. Third blind man, he turns to the left and stumbles down a flight of stairs and says, ow, elephants hurt. Are any of them really wrong? I mean, aren't they all just experiencing different parts of an elephant? See, the problem with the first illustration is that it begins by assuming that the three blind men have a hold of an elephant. And that's the whole question, isn't it? When people are experiencing different parts of God, is it God they're experiencing at all? Or have they all just wandered off into the woods? What we're involved in here and will be for the next two weekends is an ancient practice, perfectly good pastime with a perfectly terrible name. The name is apologetics. And the reason it's a terrible name is because it sounds like we're saying we're sorry for something. But that's not where the word comes from. Apologetics is actually a legal term. If you're a defense attorney in a court of law, to offer an apology means to deliver a defense for your client. So historically, apologetics has been a study of defenses of the Christian faith. And we've been doing this for 2,000 years. Jesus practiced this with his disciples himself. So where does the Bible tell us that we're supposed to do this? Well, you find this in 1 Peter 3.15. Because that's where it says, But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. So we're told to always be prepared to give an answer to everybody who asks us to explain the hope that we happen to have. This is apologetics those answers, those reasons. And there's two ways that you can do apologetics. The first is the scholarly approach. You can memorize a whole collection of facts and statistics, all the information about ancient manuscripts and how many there are and dates and places. And if your mind works that way and you enjoy that, God bless you. Good for you. For the rest of us, there's a second way, and that's to learn some simple, practical, memorable illustrations like the three that I just gave you that you can use to capture apologetic ideas. Now, what's the benefit of learning illustrations instead of facts and statistics? Well, illustrations, they're great because you can use several without having the other person glaze over, right? Illustrations are stories. That's all they are. They're many stories. And so, for me, I've written nine murder mysteries now, and friends have asked me, why would you write novels when you work in ministry? And I tell them, it's because stories can go places that sermons can't go, right? Did you ever notice that 2,000 years after Jesus lived, even atheists know some of his parables? We all know the stories of Jesus. Even people who never walk into a church know some of the stories of Jesus. Stories stick. If you ask them, what was the context? What was Jesus teaching about that day? Where was he? They'd have no clue. That's harder to remember, but stories stick. So ask Mike Lee, and he'll tell you that sometimes when it comes to teaching, the whole challenge of teaching is to find the illustration that captures the point. Because 10 years after you give a talk, somebody will walk up to you and say, you know, I remember you. You told the story about but I've never had anybody walk up to me and say, hey, you used a three-point outline and I remember all three points. They don't have a clue. They have no idea what I was talking about, but the story stuck. 
So if I can use the right story, the story that captures the point, I implanted the idea in their heads. You got the idea? So what we're going to do is talk through a series of simple illustrations, little mini stories that capture apologetic points. And along the way, I'll stop and give you a few tips about how to use them well. Fair enough? Fair enough. So, suppose you're talking with a friend, with a co-worker, with a family member. And suppose they said to you, you know, if Jesus was really God like you people say, why didn't he just say so? What would you say to something like that? Well, try this. You know, if I wanted to claim to be the most powerful person in the United States, I might say, I am the president. But if I happened to be in England at the time, that would be a meaningless thing to say because they have no president. So I would change the way I'd say it there. In England, I might say, I am the prime minister. I guess I could say I am the queen, but that might leave the wrong impression. Now, if I, I took a trip over to Austria or to Germany, I wouldn't claim to be the prime minister. That would mean nothing to them there. I would say, I am the chancellor. And if I happened to be in Kuwait, I would say, I am the emir. And if I was a Jew living 2,000 years ago, I would say, I am, and that's all I would say. Now, what you might say to this person is, hey, did you see Exodus when it came out? Did you see that movie? Fantastic effects. Or did you ever see Prince of Egypt, that animation? Or did you ever see the Ten Commandments? If you're as old as me, if they look like they're that old, that's the one you want to ask. Did you ever see the Ten Commandments? Charlton Heston. Charlton Heston actually was Moses. If you've seen any of those movies, you might say, then you know the basic story of Moses, right? Israelites were enslaved by the Egyptians for 400 years. God decides to deliver them by sending Moses. So Moses has the job of going to the Israelites and saying, hey, God just sent me to lead you out of slavery. Follow me. Now, Moses is a little insecure about this because he's got to explain to the Israelites without God present who it is who sent him, right? So he asks a very reasonable question. Whom shall I say sent me? What Moses is asking God is, I need a name. You sent me to do some hard business. I need a business card. Whom shall I say sent me? What is your name? Now, that's an interesting challenge, isn't it? God choosing a name for himself. Because if you've got kids, you've been through that process of naming a child. And it's not an easy thing to do, is it? If you're single or don't have kids yet, can I just explain how the process will go? Step one, you cross off all the names of all the old boyfriends and girlfriends. Or at least you better. Because you don't want that coming out ten years into the marriage, right? Second thing that you do is you take a good long look at your last name and you cross off all the names that you can't use because of your last name. So my last name is Downs. So we crossed off the list Mark. Mark Downs, the discount kid. Uh-uh. Ben Downs, the humble kid. Neil Downs, the spiritual kid. There's all kinds of Downses that we're never going to see the light of day, right? You cross all those off. Then, because you're churchgoers, you start considering biblical names. But Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they're, they're, they're too common. So, in desperation, you find yourself looking at a whole Obama. 
Tiglath Pilneser III. I mean, you're that desperate finally, right? So we go through this endless process, and for our firstborn, guess what we come up with? Tom. Tom. Yeah, that's like standing in line in Starbucks for an hour and ordering coffee, right? And I'll never forget day one. Joy's in the hospital holding little Tommy in her arms, and she's got this look on her face while she's looking at him. I said, what's the matter? She said, well, he just doesn't look like a Tom. I said, of course he doesn't look like a Tom. He looks like Winston Churchill. (laughs) All babies look like Winston Churchill. And when we get old, we look like Winston Churchill again. We can't name everybody Winnie. But the point is, we want names to fit. Isn't that true? So we've got a little 20-pound cockapoo at home named Bailey. I wanted to name her Viper. (laughs) Wouldn't that be great? That way I could open up the back door and go, yo, Viper. And then look at the looks on the neighbor's faces when this 20-pound cockapoo came running up, you know. But I was overruled by my wife. That's why women were invented, by the way. We want names to fit. In the Bible, you find that names often describe They've got actual meanings. This name means that. Now, God has got to choose a name for himself. What does he do? What does he say? Roberto. Always like the sound of that. Johan. Now, that's a little too Swedish. Olaf, maybe a name from Frozen. What what name could describe a unique being, the indescribable God? And so what you find in Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, it says this. God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites, I am has sent me to you. Now that little Hebrew expression, I am who I am, sometimes it's translated I am that I am or even I am what I am. That's represented by the Hebrew letters Y, H, W, and H. No vowels in Hebrew. So you throw a few vowels in so you can pronounce it, and it comes out Yahweh. And Yahweh to the Jews was the most holy name of God. They had other names to use to describe God, like Elohim and Adonai, but Yahweh. I am is the name God chose for himself, and a pious Jew would never have spoken that name out loud. Because unclean lips should never speak the most holy name of God. That brings us to John chapter 8 in the New Testament. Because in John chapter 8, Jesus is having a discussion with Jewish listeners, and here's what you find. Jesus says, Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. You are not yet 50 years old, they said to him, and you have seen Abraham Very truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. I am what? Sounds like an incomplete sentence. Oh, oh, but they got it. Because you see, the next verse, verse 59, says, at this, that means at those words, they picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. Why would they pick up stones to stone him? Because Jesus just committed blasphemy, right? He just used God's name as his own name. And you can't do that in a Jewish culture. 
So what if your friend, your coworker, your family member, what if they would say, okay, so Jesus claimed that he was God, but that doesn't make it true, right? What would you say to something like that? Well, try this. When you were a kid, did you ever go on vacation with your parents? Did you ever pile into the car and go on road trips? I got a friend named Dan. Dan used to live here in Cary. Dan said that that's what they would do as kids, road trips in the station wagon. And he said his dad would never stop to eat anywhere but Kentucky Fried Chicken. And he said at the end of every vacation, all the vinyl in the car was shiny. <laughs> Isn't that great? We'd stop at Bojangles for Bowberry biscuits. All the vinyl in the car was like flypaper. You say to your friend, did you ever go on road trips? Because when I was a kid, we used to play this game called Who Am I? And the way the game works is you give a series of clues, and their challenge is to kind of deduce from the clues who the unique individual is that you're talking about. So, I live in Washington, D.C. Who am I? You're President Obama. Nope. I live in the White House. Who am I? Oh, okay, you're Michelle Obama. Nope. I'm a teenager. Who am I? Oh, okay, you're Malia Obama. Nope. I just turned 14 last week. Who am I? Oh, you're Sasha Obama. Now, with each step, with each question, there's different people that could be possible answers. But by the time I got to the fourth question, only one person fits all the characteristics, right? I never told you that it's Sasha Obama. Never told you that. You came up with that. But it's a logical deduction, and there is no other possibility. No other person anywhere in the world fits all four of those categories. The goal of the game, Who Am I?, is to stretch it out as long as you can, right? As many clues as possible, disguising it until the very end. Don't you find it interesting that when Jesus used the name of God as his own, and he did it multiple times, every time it happened, his listeners picked up stones and tried to kill him. The problem is that Jesus had a distinct mission, a sense of what it was he wanted to accomplish in his life on earth, and he seemed to have a timetable in mind as well. And nothing messes up your timetable like people killing you. And that's why he only said, I am, a few times, and instead he played a game of who am I with people. And the game went something like this. People marvel at my teaching, who am I? A wise man, a sage. Nope. I can predict the future, who am I? Oh, well, then you're a, you're a prophet. Nope. I, I existed before the world existed, who am I? Well, you're an angel. Nope. I can control the forces of nature. I can heal congenital diseases with nothing more than a word. I have authority to forgive sins, not the sins that you will commit against me, the sins you will commit against one another. And I will return one day to be the ultimate judge of all things. Who am I? Who else is there? You see, that list of questions narrows it down to only one possible being, and that's the God of the universe. Sometimes Jesus came right out and said, I am. Other times he said, who am I? And you'll notice if you read through the Bible, Jesus saying to people, who do men say that I am? And then he would turn to his disciple and say, who do you say that I am? 
suppose you're having a conversation with a friend, the coworker, family member, and suppose they would say something like this. But, but why, why didn't he make the issue clearer? Why didn't he just walk around saying, I'm God, I'm God, I'm God? Why would he do, why would he do that? Why didn't he just make it perfectly clear? Try this. There's a movie that came out, an old movie. By the way, the definition of an old movie, three years old or older. Well, this is a real old movie. It came out in 1980. It was called Ordinary People. It was directed by Robert Redford. It was starring Donald Sutherland, Mary Tyler Moore, and a very young Timothy Hutton. The movie Ordinary People was taken from a novel by the same name. It was written by Judith Guest. It's the story, really, of two brothers... Timothy Hutton played the younger brother. His name was Conrad. Conrad had an older brother, an older brother that he absolutely idolized. And so one day, the two brothers decided to disobey. They lived near Chicago, and they took the family's sailboat out on Lake Michigan in bad weather. Turned into a storm, sailboat capsized. Conrad, Timothy Hutton, was a stronger swimmer than his older brother, so his older brother drowned. Conrad survives. So the movie Ordinary People is really the account of how this entire family struggles with grief, especially Conrad, who now has to see a psychiatrist played by Judd Hirsch once a week from then on. And we see several of these encounters between Conrad and the psychiatrist. And every week, the psychiatrist gives him question after question, and Conrad is getting more and more frustrated because he can't understand what this is all about. He can't understand where this is all going, but he is struggling with his grief. It's tearing him apart. And in the climactic scene of the movie here, now this is a spoiler alert, but it's a 35-year-old movie, okay? So you've got plenty of other options out here. In the climactic scene of the movie, finally there's a breakthrough where Conrad says to the psychiatrist, It should have been me. I should have died instead of my brother. He's been struggling with survivor guilt. And suddenly he understands. And when he says that, the psychiatrist says, yes. And then Conrad shouts at him, why didn't you tell me? Because obviously he's known all along. And the psychiatrist says to him, because you had to say it. Isn't that an interesting thought? The psychiatrist knew what his struggle was all along. But there are some thoughts, some things, some truths that are so profound, they are so deep in their implication, nobody can just tell you. It's not going to change your life that way. You have to say it. Right? And that's what happens in raising kids. You raise your kids, you explain your faith. Jesus is God. He's God. Jesus is God. Yeah, but they have to say it right? A time has to come where that becomes their own belief. And that's why Jesus would say to people, who do men say that I am? But who do you say that I am? That's why often I like to say to people, have you ever read the life of Jesus? Don't say to people, have you read the Gospels? What is a gospel? It's a kind of music. That's what it is. What does gospel mean to anybody but us? Watch your jargon. Say to people, have you ever read the life of Jesus? Tell them there are four many histories of the life of Jesus in the Bible. Call them histories. They are. Four many histories of the life of Jesus. None of them is any longer than a copy of Sports Illustrated, and there are no distracting swimsuits. Yeah, you can read one in a sitting. 
And when you read the life of Jesus, ask yourself two questions. Who did this guy think he was? And then, who do you think he was? That's the challenge that you want to give to different people. Now, let me be honest here. What we're doing here, talking about apologetics, some Christians don't like this. Some Christians have complaints about this entire practice. And usually the complaint comes in one of two forms. Objection number one is, look, you can't argue anybody into the kingdom. And you know what? They're right about it. But on the other hand, you can't preach anybody into the kingdom. You can't evangelize anybody into the kingdom. John chapter 6, verse 44, Jesus said, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. I can't do anything to get somebody into the kingdom. God has to do it. But God in his sovereignty is pleased to work with us in a cooperative way. So he uses our evangelizing and he uses our preaching and he uses our reasoning and apologetics too. He uses our illustrations. But you know, there is one good point to this complaint. There is no sense in arguing with people. Remember I showed you 1 Peter 3.15. You could see it on the screen there. When I showed it to you the first time, I left off the second part of the verse. Here's the rest of it. In your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but, see this part? Do this with gentleness and respect. See, what Peter is telling us is you need to be prepared with an answer, but deliver your answer in a certain style. In all communication, there is content and there is style, and style is everything. C.S. Lewis once said, love is the great apologetic. That's just another way of saying style is everything. And what I'm telling you here is whatever clever answer, reason, fact, or statistic you ever come up with to explain to another person, all along the way you should be asking, was I gentle? Did I say that in a respectful way? Because that's what we're told to do. Now the second complaint that Christians have about doing apologetics, this one has a spiritual spin on it. This one is, if you really have faith, you don't need to do this kind of thing. Because, you see, faith is all you really have to have. In fact, you're watering down or taking away from faith if you need reasons and explanations for the things that you believe. And it sounds pretty noble, only it's not very biblical. I want to show you a passage from John chapter 20. Very interesting situation and very relevant to you and me today. In this situation, Jesus has already been crucified, and he has already risen from the dead. And he appeared to his disciples in a closed room, but not all the disciples were there at the time. Most notably absent at the time was Thomas. So we come in here on John chapter 20, verses 24. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, okay then, I believe you. No, actually, he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Now, it's from this passage, by the way, that Thomas gets his name Doubting Thomas, which I don't think is a fair name because you don't find it in the Bible. And I don't think we should call him Doubting Thomas unless Jesus called him Doubting Thomas. And Jesus didn't. Because here's where it goes from there. 
A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And you can imagine Thomas thinking, busted. Uh-oh. Because this is the perfect place for Jesus to criticize him. Isn't it? Can't you imagine Jesus saying to him, Oh, ye of little faith. Oh, 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 really, you need to see my wounds. You need to stick my hand, your hand into my wounds. And by the way, Thomas's standards for evidence were pretty doggone high, don't you think? He not only said, I got to see Jesus, he said, I got to see his wounds. Because you could have a clone, you could have a Jesus look-alike. I got to know this is the guy that was hanging on the cross. Oh, and you know what? There are special effects. Somebody drips a little blood in the back of his hand and says, yeah, see that? Uh Uh-uh. I'm going to stick my finger in the hole in his hand. I'm going to put my hand in the hole in his side. That's a little personal, don't you think? Thomas said, that's my standard for evidence, and if you're not going to give me that, I'm not going to believe. But Jesus never criticizes him for asking for evidence, does he? Because here's what happens next. Then he, Jesus, said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. And Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. And then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. That last line, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed, that's a nod to you and me. That's Jesus winking at the camera, isn't it? Because what Jesus was saying is, you know, Thomas, you needed evidence. Here, I'll give you the evidence. But you know, five minutes ago, you were in a position where you needed to believe in me because of the testimony of other people. Ironically, you got your evidence, but all the people that come after you, they're going to have to believe because of the testimony of people like you. And faith is never easy. Belief always comes hard. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus never criticized Thomas for asking hard questions or wanting evidence. And what I'm trying to tell you is we don't just do apologetics for unbelievers who need to be convinced. We need to do apologetics for us. We need to do it too. I think there are two tragic things that can happen to a church that can be fatal to a church. The first is when our church becomes a place where no one can struggle. You can't be having problems in your marriage You can't be struggling with your kids. You can't be struggling with an addiction. Oh, no. When you come here, you need to put a smile on your face, dress up, and pretend that everything's fine. Everything's good in your life. You need to be a pretender. See, that's fatal to a church because the church is a place where we're supposed to be encouraging. We're supposed to be helping each other, bearing one another's burdens. And we can't be doing that for each other, meeting actual needs, if you're pretending that things are going better in your life than they actually are. Often in a church, there is so much pressure to pretend that nothing ever actually happens. The second fatality for a church is when you can't ask your hard questions. Aren't you a thinking person? Aren't you a reflective person? Don't you have questions about the Bible and where it came from and how it was put together? Don't you ever read passages and think, how can that be so? I don't know. But there's always a voice inside our heads that says, no, 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 no. You just need to have faith there. Thomas would say, "Uh uh-uh, I'm going to stick my finger in somebody's hand. I need to put my hand in somebody's side. I need a reason. If I'm going to believe, I need evidence. 
And you know what Jesus would say to you when you start asking those hard, awkward questions? He would say, stick your hand in my side. Ask your hard question, and then stop doubting and believe instead. Church has to be a place where you can ask your hard question, right? Instead of pretending that we already know all the answers or have so much faith that we don't have any questions at all. And you know who needs this most? Our kids. Oh, yeah, because when we're raising kids in church, our kids have got to be able to ask those hard and awkward questions. Where'd the Bible come from? And how did these books get in there? And that looks like a contradiction, is it? How do you explain that? Are there any mistakes? How do we know it's not like the telephone game where it just got passed on and on and on until it was filled with error? Your kids need to ask those questions now because you know what? When they get out of the church and they go off to college or service or wherever, other people are going to introduce them to those questions and come up with their own answers. And if they've had no exposure to them, that can be overwhelming. We have got to be practicing with our kids inoculation theory. This is the place we need to bring up the hard questions so they can hear the fact that there are answers. But what if somebody asks a really, really, really tough question that I don't know the answer to? I'm going to teach you the most important apologetic answer you'll ever learn. This is so valuable that I want you to memorize it so you can use it too, and I'll show it to you on the screen. I don't know. God never asked you to be a scholar. Maybe you're wired that way, but that's not a requirement. If you don't know the answer, tell them you don't know, because the odds are when you're faking it, they know you're faking it. Just tell them, I don't know. I don't know. That one's over my pay grade. But then add these words. I don't know, but I know someone who does. Then call Jason, because Jason knows everything. (laughs) Call Mike or somebody else on the pastoral staff and ask them that question. And you know, the odds are they might say, I don't know either. Then they'll get on the phone and call up a seminary professor, and somewhere, somebody down the line, they know the answer. Don't panic. We've been doing apologetic for 2,000 years, and it would be almost impossible for you to come up with a question that no one has asked and answered convincingly a long time ago. There is only one impossible question, and it's the one that never gets asked. Don't let doubt become a cancer. And that's what it becomes when you squelch the hard questions you've got. So we're going to continue next week and the week after talking about illustrations to use with other people and on ourselves about the difficult things in our faith. Fair enough? All right, let me say a prayer for us. Thank you, Father God, that you welcome our questions and that you're not embarrassed or surprised by our doubt. And I know you'd say to each of us, here's the evidence. Now, don't be doubting, be believing. Lord, we want to be believing. Help us each to address those things that plague us. Give us the answers that we need. Strengthen our faith. We love you. We thank you. We pray in Christ's name.